What's happening, everybody? This is V3Cast, episode 30. What do you know about that, man? We made it to 30, 30. episodes. 30. That's right. I can't number. believe it. I love it. We love doing this podcast. We are the band Voyager 3. We also do a podcast, and you're hanging out with us tonight. And we have a special guest. But before we get to that, I got to know, fellas, what are you drinking? Greg, you look thirsty. Well, oh, that looks spooky. What is that? I've had I've had this on the podcast before, so it's a it's a repeat, but it's worth repeating. Uh, I don't masking. generally like I don't really generally like dark beers, but I think in the last podcast I said this one from Three Floyds. If you can find that variety pack that has backmasking in it, plus you know it's highly satanic. That's right. Look at that. Perfect Art. for Halloween. Right. So I feel like go Twin get Temple some backmasking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, don't, don't you feel like Twin Temple puts that on their rider? We have to have back masking. Uh, uh, that whole tour, that whole Danzig tour puts that on their rider. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't think Danzig drinks still, but uh, I'm sure some of the other guys do. And Behemoth and Midnight, that was the most satanic tour I've been to uh, yep. maybe ever. And, and, and God bless them for that. That was great. <laughs> uh, I see what you did there. <laughs> My, uh, I, got, I got a little Shiner Bach here. One of my favorite beers and one of the coolest old school yellow labels with the little ram there. Can you see that ram? No, there's the ram. Oh, yeah. Is that satanic too? I think it might be. Oh, you know, rams are always satanic. I think so. That's all right, though. It's all right. There you go. go. All right. It's Halloween, man. It's what what is today? October 3rd? October 4th? Yeah. We're in the Halloween season, fellas. Right. Right. We're in the spooky season. And uh, I love it. What do you got, Steve? I have a clearly Canadian cherry, fresh cherry. And look, there's all the moisture on the bottle. It looks so good. Let me crack this open and see if it makes some good noise. I hope hope, hope you could hear that. That was beautiful. Let's see how it tastes. Because I haven't had this one before. Clearly Canadian's always been great. Hey, Steve. I've had one in years. Mm, It tastes like I'm eating cherries. Why is it so good? Steve, if if I may... It has a good taste. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wait, uh, I'll demonstrate. Let me see. It has a good taste. Shout out yeah. to Uncle Bill. Yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get right on to our special guest. A Detroit legend, Vinny Dombrowski. There he is. <laughs> Look at Thanks, this guy. Vinny. It's like a real rock star sitting there, Steve. <laughs> That's right. That's right, man. Many, many a hit. Many a yeah, hit. That's, that's <laughs> funny. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm trying to avoid being starstruck. <laughs> uh, Vinny, how you been, man? Good. Sponge has had a, a real good summer, and uh, we've managed to keep really busy and uh, it's encouraging because we've seen a lot of young people starting to get into the, the 90s music. So it seems like there's the fans that have been around since we started over 30 years ago. But all of a sudden, there's like the, the kids of the parents that 
grew up listening to Sponge. Now we got the kids. So it's it's kind of like a whole new audience. And uh, it, it definitely is encouraging to see that happen over the last year. That is That's awesome. so great. Yeah. So awesome. Because uh, the, the music, even though it originated in the 90s, I've been listening to it uh, a lot lately, getting ready for this. And it's not dated whatsoever. Like it's timeless. It's great rock and roll. So, um, so yeah, it's great that that new generation is coming into that for sure. Yeah, they they feel it. You know, it's so strange. My uh, youngest son, he's thirteen, and um, he immerses himself in the early Metallica music with Cliff Burton playing bass, yeah. and he plays bass, and he really works hard at it, and he just. I asked him one day, is there any new bands that you love to listen to? And he really just kind of, and I didn't introduce him to Metallica. He found Metallica. Hmm. Um, wow. He seems to have his own bands that he listens to, but you know, obviously Metallica going all the way back to what, 1983 or something like this. But yeah. um, it seems like the older rock seems to resonate with a lot of younger people. Hell yeah. yeah. That aggression yeah. I think is uh, appealing for sure. Really just raw yeah, yeah. aggression. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, speaking of your son and finding music and things like that, I think this is a perfect way to ask you, uh, what was a song or an album that made you want to write and or perform music? What's something that really struck you back in the day? You know, I, I always go right back to the, um, and of course, I was interested in music. I was playing music, but I think what really struck a chord with with me back in the day was the um, David Bowie Diamond Dogs album. Mm-hmm. And I do believe Mick Ronson was still playing guitar for Bowie. And there was some. The, the, it wasn't like you know crazy Ingve Malmsteen style guitar playing, but there was something very raw about that guitar playing and the use of the guitar and the use of feedback. And the style of writing, um, not to mention um, the style of rock and roll that um, David Bowie was back at that time. And not to mention, my mom saw the cover of the record. She goes, this record, this album has to leave this house now. (laughs) (laughs) It was it was it was kind of rock and roll that was working on every level it could possibly work on. Yeah. Offending the parents, uh, (laughs) probably a, a racy cover. Yeah, exactly. I, I got you. Loud, abrasive, all the stuff we yeah, love, but the parents are afraid of. <laughs> it's it, great. Yeah, it, it hit it. Yeah, it hit on every level. That's awesome. It's a parental advisory sticker of his time, you know. Right. Put yeah. that parental advisory on there and every kid wants it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and think about it back then, there was no such thing um, that I recall, but we had those albums uh, and that, that was definitely one of them that I go, yeah, this, this shit is working for me pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. Very cool. Uh, I don't know Uh, if I've heard that particular record or not, but now I'm going to check it out tomorrow. I'm going to crank it up and, 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 and dive in. But it's stuff that, you know, like, you know, the dance of the ever circling skeletal family. I think that was probably one of my, one of my favorite jams just because of the way the guitar was. So it's like rebel rebel comes off of that record, but rebel rebel was not my favorite song off of that album. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I was more the B side dude. Yeah. Gotcha. That's awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your journey to sponge, like starting with warp drive and loud house. How did it, how did it come about? You know, there was a 
major shift in music going on that I was just so aware of um, in the mid eighties. And of course, playing I, I got a gig playing drums with a band from Milwaukee, which was Warp Drive. Um, I got that gig from Ben Gross. Um, oh, the engineer. Owned Pearl Sound, yeah. And um, Ben, of course, is just produced an insane or mixed an insane amount of kick-ass albums. He's had a great career. But Ben, in, in Detroit at that time, knew of this band from Milwaukee that uh, he was recording and asked me to come in and um, work in the studio with the band. And then eventually I got out the uh, on the road with the group as well but um you know it was definitely kind of a you know like a hair metal thing and all the while that was going on i was the guy you know setting up my gear or tearing my gear down with my cassette player and my cassette of uh the band fear in my cassette player nice. constantly blaring that stuff or that kind of stuff so yeah, I was definitely aware and moving in that direction and uh, eventually left that band to kind of just start to immerse myself in this this new freedom of, of the, what would become the 90s music. And um, the bands that were just hitting on all cylinders back then, you know, whether it was Bad Brains or Helmets or um, uh, Early Jane's Addiction, the Red Hot yeah. Chili Peppers. Did I mention Bad Brains? But um, yeah. it, it, those groups uh, were just, you know, I mean, it was just freedom. And and, yeah. and who could who could avoid that? Just the honesty and the truth that was coming from the music at that time. And that's where I uh, pointed where I wanted to go, and which eventually led me to Loud House. Yeah, a lot of stuff uh, at that time. Like I can remember the very first time I heard the lead track to quickness because they had a video for that i think it was mm -hmm. either 89 i think pretty sure 89 uh, mm -hmm. bad brains in my opinion their best record and when, when that video came on and that tore in i was like oh my <laughs> god because all the other bad brains that i loved was like kind of lower fidelity and i still okay. loved it but when <laughs> quickness came out and it was like a properly produced bigger label on caroline i believe uh album oh that just punched me out and i loved it i like the Hit me again. <laughs> it's appropriate that you mentioned Bad Brains twice because they're that damn good. That's right. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's so funny when you see a group like that, um, and you go, "Wow, look at what the other kids are doing." <laughs> you go, yeah, yeah, "Shit, yeah. I'm in." And you know, I mean, truth be told, you know, you go Fishbone. What uh, went on with that band back in the day? You just go. There was just a lot of cool shit cooking, man. And it was like yeah. how. How is it that uh, it's, it's unavoidable that you begin to love all that stuff and yeah. you plug into it? And, and it's not like for, I don't think anybody goes, well, that, that's where all the money's going. And that's right. what the labels are doing. They're signing these bands. I go, I'm not sure what they were doing back then, but it sure was fun. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think the music listening audience was ready for a change. Hair metal had had its time. And um, obviously they were looking for something a bit more honest. You know, and that's where those bands sort of gained a foothold with with the most obvious being Nirvana. But um, no, so but... you mentioned you mentioned record labels. So that's a good segue to our next question here, which is so how did the how did the sponge record deal come to be? Um, we had. The underpinnings of our our business still 
kind of intact after Loud House. And um, I think the group, Loud House, recorded a second record. Um, we were on Virgin, recorded the first album. We were dropped after that first record was released. We were hell-bent on making a second record. And at that time, um, we pretty much completed it. But Kenny, the singer, um, decided that he um, had enough. He didn't want to do the Loud House thing anymore. And he split. And um, I did participate in the writing. And we started to look for a singer. But um, since we were writing, working in the studio, I'm like, I'll sing this shit, you know. I'll just get in there and sing it we'll continue to look for a singer but at that point though we started to progress so quickly we started doing shows and um recording more and and like i said a minute ago because we still had the underpinnings of some kind of uh, management that kind of got us in the door um to have some labels look at the band so you know we were up and coming band playing a lot of shows recording on our own dime and um when we got those demos into the hands of our management, they were like, yeah, this is cool. And they started to uh, circulate those demos. Loud House actually had a deal. I didn't realize that. So that kind of helped momentum keep going. Even after that, after the first record and the second record didn't materialize, there was still enough momentum uh, going basically. Yeah. And I, even after we got dropped by Virgin, um, that second record I thought was so good that had the band stayed together we would have had no problem getting another deal i was like this, this shit but but only because it's like you know we just love what we were doing and it sounded yeah. kick ass and we we're having a good time doing it and i go that's all the right reasons for shit to work and i th i felt that it was it was definitely any one of us could have quit we could have said forget it after the band got dropped we could have gone that's it i don't want to do this anymore but i think everybody aside from kenny had a lot of um interest in, yeah. in creating music still did they basically when you started singing in the studio and you started playing shows they're like well you're you're the singer now is that how it happened like it, that's it, your that's your job it, it, it was working man you know it yeah. was working and uh i think it, it people believed it and yeah yeah it, it just seemed like everybody had that um they had faith you know mm -hmm. And they had um, commitment. And when you got that and you got some songs, it it, it can it can work. Hell yeah. For Was sure. that your first time singing in a band or had you done that earlier? I mean, you know, I would sing behind the drums, you know, yeah. I'd get, <laughs> play and sing a song or think mm -hmm. something I wrote behind the drums. But yeah, to be out front, uh, that certainly was the first time. Awesome. Well, it was meant to be because you're one of the best front men I've ever seen. I mean, I know in, in an interview, we shouldn't be like praising you and stuff, but I mean, you're just, you're the man. Vinny, I've been saying that for years. <laughs> Vinny's the man. You're one of the best uh, front men I've ever seen. So there, there you go. I'm just going to say it, break the rules of the interview. There you go. That's true. I, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that, Aaron. I, I really do. It's so funny, though, anymore. I go, you know, it's, I, my kids come out to the gigs, you know, and recently they've been out to the gigs. And, and the more I like move on stage, if I see myself doing that, like in a video, I go, God, 
he looks like some six-year-old guy moving around on stage. So <laughs> I pair, I've kind of pared the moves down a little bit. You know, I just reeled that in a little bit and tried to be like a, a cooler elder statesman. So, you know, the, the explosive rock and roll moves are, are kind of put on the back burner because it's just like you just go, looks kind of silly. <laughs> That's only in your yeah. head. That's yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> Our kids are our toughest critics, by the way. That's very right. true. Very, very true. Uh, this is true. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right on. So then that brings upon then obviously the debut Sponge album, which was called Rotting Pinata. Um, and so one yep. of my questions would be, um, were a lot of the songs already written for Rotting Pinata because you guys have been kind of transitioning from Loud House to Sponge or when sponge got a deal did you go okay let's write a record and then you kind of formulated those songs in the studio with that intent yeah good question and i'll start the answer with this so we recently um worked with war god uh a label to re-release the first sponge record and the second sponge record and the second sponge record the wax ecstatic record they were so cool they got our a and r guy from back in the day to do the liner notes and in those liner notes our our, our old a and r guy pablo he goes you have your whole life to write your first album you know yeah and i saw that i'm i'm like oh, we didn't have our whole life to write that <laughs> record those none of those songs were loud house songs first of all okay okay not a one <laughs> we were writing ferociously and even <laughs> without a deal we had half of our first album recorded. Plowed was done. The song Plowed was recorded and done before we even had a label get involved. We would go out to the loft and Celine, Tim Paddle, and I could call Tim, you know, at 11 o'clock at night. He'd go, okay, come on out. And we'd go out there and we'd just start recording. And it was just a great environment to do that. So those songs were all written really fast and mm -hmm. joey and mike the guitar players at that time would just have cassette tapes full of guitar riffs and ideas and i would just tear through everything and anything that hit me we would use so i mean the shit came together real quick and even the second record we had a ton of shit written for the second record so we didn't have our whole lives to write that first record it all yeah. happened real quick right awesome on. wow yeah i mean there's so many uh, excellent tracks on that first record. And and a point that Aaron uh, made a couple of days ago when we were talking about this interview, he goes, you know, I kind of forgot how driving and aggressive uh, riding pinata is. So, uh, yeah, because like the, you know, you, you got, I mean, plowed is, is super, you know, hard and, and straightforward with one of my favorite riffs. And but then you then but then the other radio hit was um, sixteen candles and that's got a you know yeah. lighter lighter guitar tone. But then yeah. um, re re listening to this stuff, I'm like, well, they, no, they were they were mostly hard. And then they had a like a couple exceptions, you know, and that kind of occurred on on every album really. And that that's mm -hmm. great that that appeals you know to to me for sure to you know mostly the heavier stuff and then the some lighter stuff thrown in, you know. Yeah, but it, but it's so funny. The lighter stuff off that first record, people want to hear that stuff. To like at the gig on Saturday, we uh, we played out in Rochester Hills, and man, they're, they're requesting some of that lighter. It blows my mind. You know, those songs are really 
to me, the record is kind of an art project in a way. And uh, some of those light songs that contrast those heavy tunes, people really, they request those constantly. It mm. blows my yeah. mind. So the heavy stuff, it almost is a given. You go with the heavy stuff, just gets people pumped up and you want to play it. But I'll be damned if they don't want to hear a song like Drowning. They they just yeah. they want to hear that shit. They don't yeah. go, well, you need a Menasha. They're always going, let me hear Drowning. <laughs> let me hear Raining. And I go, yeah. what, what, what the hell goes on with those songs? What's so special? I can't even tell you what's so special about those songs. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's... maybe there's just, uh, like with Raining, that, that, those get that kind of guitar arpeggio with a, a lot of the verb on it. It's very, it creates a mojo, man. That's one of a kind. So maybe they're attaching with those textures. I don't know. I don't know. You're right though. It's sometimes it's a mystery. You chase that. It's best not to chase it. <laughs> it's a great balance overall, the the light and the heavy, you know? Yeah, man. And, and that's the kind of thing with those guitar arrangements and the kind of stuff that uh, Joey and Mike wrote, they it, they really worked on that stuff and to me it was almost it, there were bands from the 80s the scorpions judas priest that had all those great double guitar parts but mm -hmm. i can't recall a band from the 90s that really worked on their guitar arrangements like those guys did you know Man. That really, I think that really stood out. You know, they really worked hard, but it worked in an alternative rock way as opposed to like, you know, like really kind of fast, um, arpeggiated uh, solos, harmony, things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. The guys yeah. really did a great job and it created a very cool vibe um, yeah, with that, that, that thought, that direction. You had mentioned that uh, during recording of, of Rodding Pinata, you could call up. Uh, the guys or, or or Tim in particular, like at all hours of the night and uh, and be like, hey, I got some ideas. Let's let's meet up at the studio. So my question would be, uh, do you have any um, cool, notable, memorable um, memories from the record recording session for Rotting Pinata and also maybe some of the gear? Because I'm I'm a gearhead. I like to do studio stuff. So I always like oh, to God. get in that headspace. <laughs> the gear. <laughs> I mean, the gear, that early stuff was recorded on like this half inch or no, a one inch Tascam recorder. We we didn't even have the the big fat two inch tape we were recording on back then. Gotcha. It was uh, like one inch 16. Yeah, something like that, man. So, and it was it was all like cool analog stuff. I mean, I would have to pick Tim's brain to find out what what he had there because I wish I knew more about that kind of stuff. But um, I'm sure Tim Tim would write it all down. And you, you might want to speak with him sometime, man. I mean, that guy is just a wealth of knowledge and stories and stuff. But yeah, yeah with Cloud, that 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 song in particular was knocked together during the day it might have been on a sunday and that evening i called tim up about getting into the studio because i go we've got this song so yeah. Tim was like yeah come on in so we went out there real late at night it was tim uh i was out there playing um drums and um tim played bass mike mike cross was, yeah playing guitar Nice. Right. Uh, yeah. So you just get, just get it done. Something, something new and exciting hits you and you want to put it on tape as fast as possible. Basically it was kind of the, yeah. the mindset. Yeah. You, know, you get it, man. When you, when you're really hot on an idea, you're, there's an urgency about recording it for some reason. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
That's awesome. That leads me to the next question is uh, when Rotting Pinata was released, um, what was your sense on on how it might do? Um, did you have like an inkling? Did you realize these songs were like really going to punch or did the label give you any indications by planning maybe big tours right away? Or, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't know. Where was your guys' headspace at, at the time of release of Rotting Pinata? I mean, I had no idea. And having had the experience with Virgin Records and Loud House, um, I wasn't, I think it was trying to be as realistic as possible. And um, I always said to the fellas, you know, you're not going on tour until the bus pulls out in front of the house. You know what I mean? It's like until that bus shows up and we were in vans for, you know, like a lot of what we did. But um, it was just an expression that I would use. So I was always um, uh, cautiously optimistic. And um, it was a lot of work at radio, believe it or not, to get plowed, to get traction. And our first single really was Nina Menasha made a video for that, leafed that out there, and then eventually plowed, um, started getting worked at radio. But it was a lot of work, and it was a super slow go, man. And even when we were getting some MTV and and radio, we still, for some reason, we were still, you know, out there doing clubs. It was like we were not on a major organized tour, which was kind of mind-blowing. But, um, you know, that certainly came later. But it was just a super slow go. We were packing big clubs, but we still had yet to really kind of get over that hump to get on a major tour. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, when Cloud finally did hit the airwaves, like we all know it did, was the transformation very quick or it sounds like no, from what you were just saying, but like how fast did it like all of a sudden transition to like, okay, we got this, we got the spins, we got the video hitting now holy shit, we're rocking. Like, it sounds like that was slow then. It was, yeah. I mean, I would guesstimate over the period of about a a good year between the time the record was released and the time Plowd started to gain traction and the band started to get on some decent tours, then they they released Molly, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, both charted, I think, I think both songs charted to about five on the Billboard Modern Rock charts, which is, you know, that's respectable, but it was again a lot of hard work on the part of the label, yeah. Uh, the the team of radio people that that we had uh, put together, and um, at that time, unfortunately, we were going through some hiccups with management at that time too, which I think may have stalled some things for us a bit because you know when you go into litigation and all this kind of crap, it really takes a little bit of. Um, focus uh, especially where the label's looking to talk to the band and they usually want to talk to a manager and there is no manager anymore so we were kind of self-managing at the time too that can be challenging because there's a i'm sure a whole art and science to that uh that you have to have you know very well polished when you're trying to write songs that's not your forte per se you know (laughs) i I get that yeah the label they prefer to talk to a manager they don't want to talk to the artist they want to be your friend and they want to tell the manager the kind of business shit that needs to be said. They don't mm-hmm. want to tell the artist the business shit. You know what yeah. I mean? Again, yeah. They want to be your pal. They want to come and hang out and have a beer. And that's always mm-hmm. a lot of fun. I wanted to uh, throw in a question about Plowed. Sometimes lyricists don't like to talk about what a song is about, but I figure 
you know, it's been it's been a, quite a while, so it's not going to like ruin anybody's uh, perception. But when I hear that song, I think I feel like it's about maybe not necessarily probably not getting signed, but just kind of devoting your life to music is when you say plowed into the sound. Are you talking about music or are you talking about something completely different, uh, especially the first verse? It's uh, will I wake up? some dream I'm no this is reality like we're we're doing this shit for real like is that what was going on there or am I am I uh, off I, I I love that I mean that's a that's a great angle and that song was written before we had any kind of deal going on right and right. and that I was over on casino in Sanilac Street in Detroit and uh my boys were you know really young and, and of course all the stuff going on in the city um there's a certain level of um, desperation at times, you know, mm -hmm. and the city of Detroit is always, you know, it's, it's given me a lot and it's, it's also taken a lot too. And that song is like the background of what was going on in my life in that city at that time, you know, whether it's yeah. a combination of things like the St. Albans street massacre or any of the other stuff that we were exposed to back then, um, you know, the, the shooting at the foundry, you know, when, when you think about those kind of moments in time and and I'm going all over the place as far as like the timeline. But, you know, it's just like living in the city of Detroit to me that that is it. It's like the yeah. soundscape for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Good to know. Hey, so before we move off of Plowed, you have to know I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. And I don't know if you listen to him as much as I do, but Howard Stern claims that one of his favorite songs of all time is plowed and he talks about it like he'll bring it up whenever he can so uh hats off to you on that first of all because you know he's like the toughest critic there is <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know and uh i you know sort of a follow-up question on that you know because i'm a fanboy of howard's uh what was it like being on his show was that a surreal moment for you i mean that's got to be a pretty intimidating uh format well, well, without a doubt, yep, for sure. Um, truth be told, Steve Brandano, his producer, contacted us several times about coming on the show. The, the issue was they, they broadcast early in the week, and we are out there certainly a lot, but it typically is like, you know, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, we go back home. And Brandano got a hold of us finally again. And I'm like, you know, we're just going to drive out there and we're going to, if we can book a couple gigs, we'll book a couple gigs. So we did. And um, yeah, it was, it was way cool. I mean, you know, truth be told also Howard wasn't there. We were interviewed by some, some other folks, but um, we got a chance to do a cover song. Like Howard's such a big nineties fan, nineties music right. fan. He had a big list of all the songs that he loved from that era. And the project was too for any band he had come in the studio, pick a song from his list and cover that song. So not only did mm -hmm. we play Plowed, but we played a Stone Temple Pilot Jam, and uh, which led, you know, when the Goo Goo Dolls came in there, the Goo Goo Dolls covered Plowed. So that mm -hmm. was, that was, I remember uh, that. Yeah. The coolest thing that happened uh, aside from just being on the show. And they, they treated us fantastic on the show. Great production. Yeah, it was killer. And that, cool. and that was really cool, too, because I remember the Goo Goo Dolls from the Metal Blade years. 
not a lot of people remember that Goo Goo Dolls were on Metal Blade, and they were actually more of like a hard pop, punk yep. rock band, and like yep. very, yep. very melodic. You know, before you know, let's forget about all the, the the very mellow soundtrack stuff that they did later on. But like, you know, the Goo Goo Dolls, we we still talk about. I think it's called Hold Me Up. My friends and I used to love that record, and uh, so to see them do Plowed was super cool. And uh, you know, like I said. To have a song that Howard holds in such high esteem, you're in, you're in rarefied air there, my friend. So, uh, awesome. you yeah. know, that's like a you know, big ups for me. <laughs> man. Oh man, you know you can't you can't you can't buy that kind of thing. You know, it's you just can't. It's organic, which I go, <sighs> I can't explain it. The only thing I can yeah, think right. of though with Howard, though, I think back like from what I understood, Howard grew up in a heavily segregated or I'm sorry, heavily integrated um, neighborhood, you know, and mm-hmm. very urban integrated neighborhood. And maybe something resonates in, in that way with him. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like a sort of Detroit parallel there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Right on. Um, yeah. So to close out uh, rotting pinata, you had mentioned that uh, once things got rolling really good and you got the traction with multiple singles and everything like that, obviously the tours got better and bigger and, more organized as you were saying. Um, so I was wondering if you could share a really cool tour moment from, from the rotting pinata tours. And I guess it doesn't have to be the bigger ones. It could be anyone, you know, any era, but something memorable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think one of the cooler tours we, we, um, were invited to be on was, um, the first band on for live and love spit love and love spit love. Um, was Richard Butler's um, solo band. And I was a, still am a big Psychedelic Furs fan. So to be on that tour with uh, Richard Butler was just huge. And, you know, you meet your heroes and you go, well, what was that like or how did that go? But he was a complete great guy, a gentleman, and always would take the time to talk or hang out. And it was just always a... A, a big moment for me yeah. uh, back then. That's Fantastic. awesome. Very, very cool. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. You get worried about that. Like, I, th- I don't think I've ever had a bad experience. Thank goodness yet of meeting, you know, somebody that was inspiring to me or looked up to over the years. So thank goodness. But I know what you mean. The potential is there to be like, Oh, that sucks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Right so on. with wax static, with wax static, was the record company more hands-on with that one because you guys were cooking or, or what did they let you do your thing with that? Good, good question. They just kind of let us do what we do when they walked in, um, to check on us when we made the first record, like I said, we were, we were halfway uh, through that record, and I, the the head of A and R came out, and uh, he sat there for a few minutes, saw what was going on, and he was just like, "Keep doing what you're doing," mm-hmm. and nobody bothered with us. You know, we had our A and R guy Pablo Matheson uh, come out uh, towards the end of making that record, and um, they kind of left us to our own devices with our A and R guy, and it was the same thing with the second record. They just kind of let us do. What we do, man, um, yeah. we just yeah. kept on cranking out the shit at the loft. Smart, smart on their part. Yeah, for sure. They did I, that I, right. Yeah, for, for sure, man. You know, it can be, it can work great or it can be a pain in the ass, but um, they let us do what we 
wanted to do. Tell us about uh, what it was like to have uh, have you seen Mary included on the Chasing Amy soundtrack? Did that uh, how did that come to be, and did that give you guys like a really you know notable boost that you could sense? Well, it's it's funny you bring that up. Just the other day, somebody reminded me at the show that that was in the movie because I had forgotten. <laughs> I was like, shit, that was in that movie. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, between the movie, the band video, and the the hard work at rock radio, because it never really resonated at alternative. I think it worked better at rock radio at the time. Um, Mary kind of climbed up the charts, got further up the charts than uh, than Wax Ecstatic did. Sponge came up with comes up with great guitar riffs. Have always done that. Wax Ecstatic is just mind blowing. The 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 constant pounding of wah 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 wah, and just and then and and the the approach of it with the the the, the wah and who came up with that was that was that who who was that was that you the the only hand i had in that riff was, was where to put that riff joey okay. mazola was playing his outro solo and he literally played that riff once mm. and we're like oh that is awesome <laughs> let's loop that for a second and throw it at the front of the song because there was no intro, man. It was just like, you know, yeah. that's all it was. But when you add that crazy riff to it, yeah. after we looped it, we were like, all right, Joe, this is what you got to do. You got to keep playing that riff at the beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah so he yeah. just kept on cranking. It's a really hard riff to repeat. You know what I mean? Right. But right. it was so cool at the end of the tune. I'm going, ah, got to have that everywhere during the chorus and at yep. the front of the tune. So it's one of the, like I still smile when I hear that song in Soundcheck. I hear that rip. I go, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it is. For <laughs> yeah, sure. you, you, you're. Um, I would say one of your strong points. Not like I've spent too much time in the studio with you, but just a little. But you're a great arranger, and and so it was it was awesome that you were able to catch that and go, wait, 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 hold on, that's not a throwaway riff for the end of the song bring it in there that's yeah. that's the basis of oh of sure song, so that's great <laughs> well yeah some some folks they know exactly what they want when they go into the studio they know every note that they want here and they do it like that and i go great good for you guys <laughs> with us i mean we got a pretty good idea but then there's those just accidents those great happy accidents that happen that nobody expects and you go i don't care who played it where it came from it's awesome let's use it and mm -hmm. that happens all the time and has happened all the time with us over the years you just find somebody makes a mistake sometimes and it's gold you just go mm -hmm. that's brilliant wouldn't have yeah. thought of that as far as i could find in my research uh tim palmer mixed the first two records i believe and uh what a uh, talent um Yes. The first Pearl Jam record, a bunch of Catherine Wheel records, some Stabbing Westward records, and more and more and more. Uh, yeah. Kudos on on landing that guy to to mix the first two records. I mean, he oh. he, he he knew his stuff. It was a slam dunk, you know. He really had a great feel for the band. He gave us the opportunity to come in during mixes and and comment on stuff. He just had a great feel for things. And he really, I, I felt he really understood the band. 
Yeah. Did he mix it out at the loft or did you have to go out to like California or New York or something? Yeah, he, he did everything out in LA from what oh. I recall. Do you have a particular uh, memorable tour experience from the Wax Ecstatic tours? Well, certainly Lollapalooza 1996 uh, was fabulous. And it was fabulous because of the variety of bands that would come in and out of that uh that tour and uh we were on the second stage we headlined the second stage and um the melvins played right before us mm. and the cows played before the melvins and it was just just a great experience to see those two bands play every night and uh we always had and you, some folks may go wow man the melvins they were like the architects of, of of grunge music, and they're playing in front of Sponge, but uh, their their crowds were always great with us, and we loved to watch the Melvins, and the Melvins would watch us, and and Buzz was always a very very cool guy to us, but that main stage with um, Metallica and Soundgarden, and oh, yeah, different yeah. bands just stopping in for a week or so, like. Um, the Ramones or Devo or Rage Against the Machine, you know, they kind of had a, a revolving cast of characters that would come in and play. So to see all those bands, it was just mind-numbing cool. Yeah, the Lala, the Lollapalooza tours really sort of changed the whole game when it came to concerts. I remember seeing Pearl Jam when they were like, nobody knew who they were. And they were like right. the band to beat. Like they went out there first and like Eddie better climbed up into the, the rafters, you know, yeah, like they were such a hungry, like aggressive band. And you, you know, you don't, you don't sort of think of them that way now because they got a lot more <laughs> what I'll call intellectual, but like, man, when they first came out, they were, they were hungry, you know, and like Lollapalooza was just such a great format for people to find bands that they might not know. And, and really like, get one over you know like i was one over by pearl jam i was like who is this band there the singer is like you know 50 feet up in the air <laughs> hanging from the from the lighting rig you know oh god when you go look all the way back to like 1991 we saw a Lollapalooza flyer which was like you know it was like rollins and um obviously james yeah and uh you know just just the killer band you just go they he, he really had it right you know not, not to mention like bands like the butthole surfers you know yeah. you just go it's yeah, really talking people large audiences to the, just fantastic bands that's a whole idea and uh I, I don't know maybe it was something that europe has always had a great handle on awesome festivals maybe it was more of a european idea that finally you know, people in the States could get their heads wrapped around. With New Pop Sunday, uh, what were some of the main motivations and, and uh, approaches for writing and recording that album? Well, that was a major shift in how we were going to operate. And um, that was the first album that we made without the same team for the first two. And um, the label felt, and they asked us, they go, um, we would like you guys to write with outside writers. And I certainly entertained the idea. I was willing to do that. Um, I know there were certain guys in the band that did not want to do that, but I felt if this is what they wanted, I would, I would entertain the idea. But they said, 
Well, if you're not going to write with outside writers, we're going to bring in a different A&R guy. And so they brought in this legendary guy, this John Kaladner guy, which is, um, you know, John Kaladner has worked with, you know, I guess Journey 8 and um, Aerosmith and uh, just a ton of big bands. And they brought John in to work with us. So uh, it wasn't the, that same freedom that we were just doing exactly what we wanted to do. It was kind of tempered by this uh, larger presence, um, if you will, yeah. that would kind of shape these songs a little differently, writing-wise and production-wise. What was it like working with uh, Kevin Shirley? I, I know he has some production credit. I'm not sure if he worked on every song or not, but uh, I know he's got a enormous pedigree, as in like the all the major Black Crows records, uh, Rush counterparts, um, uh, Aerosmith records, speaking of that, and uh, Dream Theater, Falling Into Infinity, and many more. Um, Iron Maiden. Yeah, Iron Maiden. Yeah, Brave New World. Yep, yep, yep. Um, what right was it like on. working with him? You know, straight up guy, you know, was concerned about um, tones and performances. Uh, working with John, John was the guy that was definitely dictating more of um, the, the arrangements with the with the band. Um, and, you know, Kevin was a, a good guy. He was just great at getting really good tones, you know, and nice. did great mixes. But those mixes were very different than the type of mixes that we were, you know, utilizing on the first two sponge records, which were more kind of the guitars were more present and dirgier and a uh, new pop uh, was definitely, there was a, it was more of a poppy record, man, yeah. you know, but a lot of stuff was changing at that time, you know? So it was like, you know, we didn't have the success at radio from a song like, have you seen Mary? I think the label might have felt that we were capable of more, of a pop direction with the band that could be more successful. And so I, I would suspect that they were grooming us in that direction because we weren't going to get heavier at that time. Yeah. We were getting lighter, but radio was getting heavier at that time. So it was kind of a weird point in, in music for us. I have a question about uh, kind of that transition because we've, we have friends that have been in other uh, major bands on major labels and stuff. And I remember this one, it's funny in hindsight, but at the moment it's absolutely terrible because that's your life and your livelihood and your passion. But uh, right. he mentioned to us uh, their second record was coming out and the, the label called them all to the office to like, you know, a little hurrah thing and passing out promos and, giving out stickers and and kind of that whole thing, like probably the week before your album comes out or the week it comes out. And I remember him telling um, or he hearing that uh, the, the stickers were paper instead of vinyl. So he was like, Oh shit, this is not going to go good. I, I, I think, uh, I think this is, I think this is our last record, you know? So anyway, I say that to say this is that was there at that, at that level, with like management and you know the label not talking directly to the artist as you mentioned earlier what was it kind of like uh uh like writing on the wall or could you um sense that something was like not going to be good or whatever type of thing like that or uh or did you have a, any inkling of that kind of stuff well when we delivered that record to columbia that we made with john um they weren't happy with it but frankly we weren't happy either so yeah. we made a record that they didn't like, and we made a record that we didn't like. So we're going, well, what do we do now? 
So at that point, uh, I, now I'm thinking. Now I'm thinking clearer on it. That's when they said use outside writers, you know. And I was like, okay, I would entertain that. But uh, some of the guys in the band didn't want to do that, and they were like, well, you can use outside writers and write some new songs, or you, you know, you can get bought out of the deal. So we started to look around, and um, we found Beyond Records, and basically. They bought us out of the Columbia deal. We finished the record with Beyond and released it with Beyond. But at that time, uh, once again, you know, leading out with singles like Live Here Without You, um, which was a, uh, a a decent pop track from that record, going to rock radio alternative where, you know, all of a sudden the radio stations are being programmed by consultants. It's very heavy music. That's where everything's going. And that that live here without you track was just way too light for radio. So yeah. we were just kind of like, we, and we didn't have a track on the record that would represent at radio at that time. So we were kind of in a tough spot. One of the highlights of the album, I just love the, I love Planet Girls, and I love the chorus. It's such a quirky, kind of strange tune to me, and I was wondering how that came up. That especially when you go Planet Girls. And a satellite girls, that note right there. Did that come to you or did you have to work on that? That's a strange <laughs> note to go to, but it's that it's the crux of the song for me. Cause I know here it comes that weird note, not weird, but you know, how did that happen? Do you remember that? That's kind I, of detailed, but well, it's funny when you sing that melody, you go, what chord is that? I think it's an augmented chord. And to this day, Andy Padlin, who's been with the band, you know, 20, years easy right now um he says there are no augmented chords in successful rock songs <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness that's funny that's, that's funny, funny. Yeah, right so. <laughs> it's that yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, you know, it's it's that. Rock bands don't utilize that crap, and that's probably why the song didn't take off, right? It took off for me. <laughs> yeah, I bring it up though, Aaron. I just go, it's it was based on the vocal melody, and you go, you know, you gotta figure out what chord that is, you know. Right. So yeah. I, I think that's some augmented dude. But yeah. uh yeah. I like this conversation because we we've never really focused on Planet Girls ever at all, especially <laughs> that note. And I've always I've always liked that song because of that. And to even play it live, it really goes over well. It sounds good with the band, even with that weird note. But it was just I always thought, God, it could be a single, and mm -hmm. nobody ever jumped on it as a single, probably because yeah. of that note. <laughs> and by the way you know when the labels come in and they squash ideas like that man i'm i'm against that <laughs> so you go you go put all the weird notes in there that you need to and just know that at least three people will buy it you know well you know what i i, I gotta tell you the only gauge i've ever had is how stuff makes me feel that's it yeah. i go how is this working and that's it so you live or die by that and you know it's that that's kind of it. I don't know how to. I don't know why some people like certain songs. I wish I did. I know that there are some bands that people talk about that 
you know, they write with a formula or something like that, or they just kind of recreate the, the last hit song they had, which I go, it's probably pretty smart, but I just couldn't do that. That's right. also why you get mad respect for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and drop from label. Too. Oh yeah. I, I suppose that's also probably likely in the cards, right? I, I hear you. Leading up to that statement would be um, what led to the initial disbanding of sponge after the new pop Sunday kind of era. Wow. You know, by then I believe Tim cross uh, our original bass player uh he had left the band and then probably in late 1999 maybe early 2000 that's when his brother mike left the band so we were kind of in a weird spot but there was a lot of stuff in a weird spot back then from what i recall you know yeah i think Soundgarden was kind of calling it quits for a while and the pumpkins might have called it quits for a while and yeah. allison chains was just kind of not doing anything anymore and and it was a weird time of music for a lot of those bands and it was a weird time for us, but Joe and I kind of dusted things off and, and started touring with a, uh, a new group of guys uh, right around that time. Anyway, you know, we just went out there and started uh, getting out there on the road and um, doing dates again. So there wasn't a lot of lag time, but um, the band definitely, appear to have fallen apart for a minute and then we got it back together mm -hmm. in that little bit of time you were up to other awesome stuff um one of them would be uh, the spies for darwin project um how, how did that come to be um we were managed by sponge was managed by susan silver um who managed allison chains and soundgarden uh and I think it was like Chris DeGarmo and may have reached out to Sean Kinney and Mike Inez about demoing up some songs. And then my name came up regarding um, writing and, and, and singing on some of these uh, demos that they had. Was there ever any touring with that or was that more no. so like a studio project? Yeah, yeah, just a just a studio thing. I would have loved to have made a complete album, but I think maybe we did like seven songs, did an EP. And then, of course, um, I remember when Crud uh, came to be, and, the, and and that was an awesome time. You guys were uh, making a lot of waves with the kind of high energy show, and uh, and just and the, heavy, the, super the tune, heavy, a little tuned down. Like stuff yeah. and yeah just r really cool vibes um to tell us about the inspiration for crud there were a couple of those tunes like uh meet detonation uh i thought glue it was a song called glue that eventually made it on a sponge record that was written during that spies for darwin period but it was stuff that like you know i think it maybe tried to introduce it to the band but the band the spies for darwin thing didn't gravitate towards that and it was some things that I've been thinking about for Sponge as well, but it just didn't fit Sponge. So it's like those real heavy things. Again, Meat Detonation, Reality, um, definitely not Spice for Darwin, definitely not Sponge. So it necessitated maybe putting together a different group of people um, to perform those songs. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, you nailed I, it. I mean, it was just, it was all leather black leather right. and fucking attitude and it, volume it, it was and, heavy and it was naughty <laughs> yeah it was so naughty, naughty. 
<laughs> and and let let you know the star of the show was always Danielle. Right. Like she <laughs> she I mean I can't say enough about how great and just total kick-ass professional she always was, man. And and, sure. and still is. And it it's just uh I always have a great feeling when I think about the gigs that we had done together and and just how great she always was, man. You know, she was always spot on. She was always ready to do a great gig. Mm-hmm. And 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 she would always bring you, you know, you go, it's going to be great, but she'd always bring just a little bit more to it. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Like a Halloween severed bloody hand she'd hold, <laughs> things of that nature, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's just funny, you know, like we were talking before one gig we did in Grand Rapids one time. She's like, I want to throw stuff out in the audience tonight. And I'm like, well, what do you want to throw out there? And she's like, mm. she thinks for a minute. She goes, I want to throw a baloney out in the audience. Baloney. <laughs> So we sent somebody over to the grocery store to just get a shit ton of baloney. <laughs> <laughs> but you awesome. know, if you're stepping on baloney on a dance floor, it's kind of slippery. You know what I mean? So you got to be careful when you throw baloney out on stage. That's true. Right. Very, very true. Speaking of that era, uh, roughly, um, we actually got to work together uh, with our old band Forge. Thanks for uh, taking the time to develop a, the version of of our track, uh, Dead Man Avenger. Thank you. Thank you for trusting me. Um, I remember being up there at uh, Roscoe's studio up there on, uh, was that on Mac, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. 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 And he had that, uh, that digital, that Paris system that uh, <laughs> I know he, he loved that for years. Yeah. He, he swore by that stuff, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Now I just, Aaron, you just hipped us to this. Um, I thought that was lost to, to time, but Aaron recently was uh, cleaning up some deep, corners of the basement at his house and he found the cd of that so i got it i haven't heard that in 25 yeah. years so i i gotta hear that soon yeah, yeah. Well, we we need to put it out yeah just probably for, you know there, there is a forge um youtube channel where i put let cbgb set of ours that we did back in yeah. 96 maybe i'll add that and just put a silly still up there for it or something like that yeah <laughs> we'll do that that was you know speaking of meeting your heroes like i remember when we met you and you wanted to talk about our song and I'm like, how is that even possible that Vinny from sponge would want to talk about our song? Why would he even have any interest in it at all? And then you, you came over to the house in Hamtramck and you were just, you were just asking us questions and listening to us. And I was like, I've never met anybody like this guy. Like you were, it was all eye contact and you were totally like, listening to what we were saying and i thought he's got no reason to be listening to scrubs like us but you did and then you wanted <laughs> to work with us on the song and it was just it was it was mind-blowing and uh so yeah that was it was like uh really really cool and and unexpected and you know thanks for that that was that was awesome that was one of the coolest <laughs> things ever Aaron, honestly i gotta tell you if I wasn't getting a vibe from it, I wouldn't have even bothered. You know what I mean? But yeah. when something interests me, it interests me. And I want to, and if I can make it, make uh, a difference in it and it's cool, then I like to get involved. Yeah. So that brings us to what I would call uh, like the second wave of Sponge, um, which uh, what year would you say that would be? I think I was at the return of sponge if you will it was that metro times like anniversary party at the um was it the rooster tail or something like that i think that was one of the first sponge shows you know quote unquote back 
And uh, that was amazing. And I think it was also, did Crud also play? Was it a double deal? I can't remember. It's it a long yeah, time ago now. That's a good question. It may have been, and that could have been the era where it was like Kurt Marshy playing guitar and Joe Mazzola was still on guitar. I think and, it was. And and Jimmy was back on drums, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Right. And Robbie Graham may have been on bass. Yes. Uh, this, that was probably around 2002. Somewhere like, yeah, 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. Yeah. And yeah, it was definitely a transitional place because, you know, about 2003, Joe Mazzola left the band to go play with the Cobras and Kurt Marshy went off to do the Dead String Brothers. So we were kind of going, we're scrambling for, for, some guitar players, but that's when Kyle Neely and Andy Padlin got involved right. um, with with the band and have been playing guitar with the band ever since. From an outside perspective, um, I feel like Sponge is in like a perfect position because you have a uh, a rock solid foundation of hits and fans, uh, but yet then you continue to make uh, relevant, uh, not just we have to do another record type of thing. You're making great mm -hmm. kick-ass records and that will allow you to keep playing shows as long as you want to. But um, with that though, comes a question is, is there any barriers you still uh, would like to break through in any abstract way or anything like that, or a particular band that you'd love to tour with? I, I, I would love to, you know, collaborate more. Um, I'll give you an example, like uh, this band that, group of guys I was working with is this project called the lucid we managed to um get violent j from icp to uh, collaborate on a couple of songs and you'd go man how, how is that going to work but I ended up um singing on um an icp track that was a song called heart and soul by tapau and violent j hit me oh, up and he's, love he's like we, I mean I think that they kill it and and he was like we're going to do this but we're going to rewrite all the lyrics. So, you know, it's going to be about this. And I'm singing on a chorus, and I thought it was just a fabulous idea. And then in the Lucid, we ended up doing a version of um, Epic by Faith No More. Hmm. And it was the same thing. I'm like, just change all the lyrics, man. And so we ended up calling Sweet Tooth, and Violent J rewrote all the verses and I rewrote the chorus and you go, God, it's like, you know, rewriting Stairway to Heaven or something. <laughs> but um, but it turned out so cool. It, oddly enough, you know, I go, I wish it would have gotten more traction, but I would love to do more out of the box kind of things. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to yeah. go see, I'm going to go see Little Dragon at St. Andrew's Hall on Sunday. You know, and I think that um, Yukimi is a just a mind boggling singer. I would love to do more things like that. Right on. You know, it's way out of the, you know, the alternative rock box, way out of any box and do more things like that. You know, country always in interests me, but just to do things that are just way out of the box would be just killer, you know, whether it's yeah. Guitar Wolf or whatever, you know, just anything cool. Very cool. Or, or Very rapper cool. for that matter, you know. You played the Gathering of the Juggalos, so I, it, it's funny because I sort of have an ICP tie-in in my family now. The way I tell Stephen Aaron is like every second or third family event, um, Shaggy Two Dope will be there. <laughs> so like he's such a 
he's such a fun guy to be around because he's so uh he, he he's just oozing personality right he's just one of those guys and uh he always has great stories and so anyways like um because of that it's been toyed like my brother-in-law has toyed with the idea of like hey we you know we should really get you guys we should get Voyager three to play like the psychedelic tent at the, at the gathering of the juggalos. So, yep. you know, I, I think this, I, I'm suspicious of this question, but I think it's on here because we're testing those waters. We want to stick our toe in before, before we get too far down into committing to that. So, um, I guess, you know, the question reads, you know, what's your experience at the gathering of juggalos and how'd that go for you? Well, I thought it was a win. As soon as we drove up, we were presented with our with our very own golf cart, and uh, nice. I go, man, we got our own golf cart. We can do anything. Yeah, you've arrived. <laughs> so, like, that was a big plus, man. But um, I, I think for the fact that um, they've always they've always been good to us. I've yeah. done a couple of different events with them, uh, like uh, I recall doing something with them at L Club downtown and uh they've always been very uh yeah kind to us so i think the audience has been exposed to sponge in the past and uh certainly there's that concern we're going to get pelted with shit you know like <laughs> bottles or rocks or shoes we've been hit with all this shit before but um the audience was just great to us and we played a, a pretty solid 45 minute set man and and um they were pumped up they were yelling sponge at the end. You know, I walked nice. off stage and I said to uh, our tour manager, I'm going, what are they yelling? He goes, they're yelling sponge, 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 sponge. I'm like, shit, they're doing that? And um, <laughs> that that was that was way cool. That's great. That's, that's great that's to awesome. know, for sure. You and I, Vinny, have actually worked uh, another time together um, with your album Stop the Bleeding. I, I directed two music videos uh, on that record, uh, Fade from View and Coming from the Rain which won a music Detroit music award, by the way. Um, awesome. So uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity uh, to do some cool stuff with you guys. Um, what's some good memories off of the uh, Stop the Bleeding album or tours, if you recall? Well, I think that was like 2013. We were doing um, Summerland with um, Everclear. That was like the, you know, the oh, major yeah. tour we were on with the release of that record. So we had a little bit of a... Um, a platform to promote that album and by the way you did a great job with those videos uh oh, steve that was a lot you. of fun and they turned out killer man they thank turned out killer much. and there are definitely some favorite songs of mine and favorite videos of mine too and you know good memories from the videos too making the videos and you worked your ass that off was on fun. It. and right. I, I certainly we, we appreciate that you know you, you killed it Thanks. um but yeah the, the tour um the 2013 tour of summerland with you know it was just a organized tour live was on that tour everclear sponge I'm trying to think who the hell else was on that tour i can't remember but, was that um, all sheds basically across the country yeah for the most part nice yeah for sure hopefully so you got some good, good barbecue on some of those uh some of those uh, craft services <laughs> <laughs> i don't know bro it was just getting out there and and I think we were sharing a bus with, you know, some other band, but uh, it was good to be out there with a new record and being out there and on a proper tour and a great way to promote it. And at the time, the label was called The End, and 
they were doing a pretty damn good job at promoting that record. But still, the challenges of getting new music on the radio, they always want to play the old shit. They want to play Plow, they want to play Molly. But as far as like, okay, here's Coming from the Rain. Right. Here's Fade from View. You know, the, 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 the space for new music is just tiny. You know, so yeah. anybody with new music, any band from that era with new music, it was like falling on deaf ears half the time. I mean, take Led Zeppelin. You know, if you were basing your experience with Led Zeppelin on what's played on the radio, you'd think they'd have three or four songs. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, without a doubt. But, you know, you're always going to hear that stuff. But now there's no real alternative radio. So you're going to hear Pearl Jam and Led Zeppelin, Stone Temple Pilots, The Smashing Pumpkins, and ACDC. I you know. know. It's, it's all like the same shit now, you know? Right. Yep. right. Yeah. It's all wrapped in. In this second wave of Sponge, as, I, as I'm calling it, um, what is a, a favorite uh, album? of yours uh that you could note like for for example for me um when i was researching this uh this episode i really thought the beer sessions album was just really kick-ass because to me that one has a little bit more than normal like guitar textures and effects pedals going on and i just it kind of just grabbed my ear even more than uh than other stuff that i've heard um so that's a that that Mm -hmm. one sticks out to me but uh do yeah. you have a favorite or, or or a notable one? I mean, that's definitely one of those records, you know, going back to uh, For All the Drugs in the World. Um, I thought that was a real good effort. Um, the Beer Sessions album was one, in, in 2016 was one of those records. We decided we were going to go old school sponge, which was like, you know, we're just going to record. We're going to write and we're going to record a song every day so in the morning here's the song here's how it goes let's get a bed track together let's get a scratch vocal together by about one o'clock in the afternoon we got the bed track done all the rhythm parts done we're doing a few takes of vocals and by happy hour we're doing (laughs) guitar solo and step the day and then we move on to the next song it's the same process every day old school you're just going to go in not overthink anything, going to go in and play some rock music. And and that's how that record went down. And I would love to make another record like that. Just, you know, it's it's an old school style sponge way of doing shit. Yeah, awesome. awesome. Yeah, you're oh, right. Yeah. You, you get a different mojo when you think of things. I'll, I'll just use this term, less precious maybe. Um, and don't overthink it like you said. Um, it's, it, it's a different attitude, a different formula, and definitely creates a different vibe. Very, very cool. You're, you're right. I like that less precious, you know, because sometimes, you know, you think your precious idea has got to be, you know, it's just like the thing you hold in your hands and mm-hmm. it deserves this precious treatment. And it's like, nah, this is going to, you know, we're just going to drill this shit home, man. That's yeah. it. And that's why the record was, it was fun to make. And I still like listening to some of that shit, you know? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we look forward to hearing much more sponge and much more crud in the future and i guess we're going to be at that show uh because you're right uh, it was just yeah. announced <laughs> at the, yeah. the, the crud show on november 22nd um more information coming soon <laughs> oh yeah you guys if, let me know if you're coming out we'll roll out the red carpet for you guys <laughs> oh uh, uh, scrubs come on <laughs> I'll, I'll scrubs, man. <laughs> if any i'll be waiting on my golf cart you know, i'm gonna need that to drive around your show there you we'll go. have a golf cart right there on site for you guys. <laughs> That's awesome, man. 
Yeah, you, know, you can spend your time on the golf cart driving around downtown Wyandotte, and then you drive right to the backstage area of the uh, District 142. <laughs> there we go. Dig it, man. Dig, dig it. it. I'll, we'll be there. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so immensely. much, Vinny. You guys are fantastic. It's always good to see you. Let's grab a beer sometime. All right. Thanks again, Vinny. We really appreciate your time. Keep on rocking, yeah. and we'll see you soon for sure. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks, Thanks, man. Thanks, Vinny. Once again, we want to say thank you very much to Vinny Dombrowski for that really cool behind-the-curtain interview. He had some great insights and some great stories. He's just a uh, talent, a, a legend, as Aaron said earlier. Uh, thanks again, Vinny. We really appreciate it. And we want to thank all of you guys for watching V3Cast. If you dig our podcast and if you dig our band Voyager 3, give us a like and a subscribe. It helps us out. And until the next episode of V3Cast, keep on rocking.